Chapter Thirty Three of Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Thirty Three. From Titherington the Aviator in his Devonshire home, from a millionaire amateur flyer among the orange groves at Pasadena, from his carpenter father in Jerusalem, and from Gertie in New York, Carl had invitations for Christmas but none that he could accept. Van Zyle had said pleasantly, "'Going out to the country for Christmas?' "'Yes,' Carl had lied. Again he saw himself as the dethroned prince, and remembered that one year ago, sailing for South America to fly with Tony Bean, he had been the lion at a Christmas party in a shipboard, while Martin Dockerill's mechanic had been a friendly slave. He spent most of Christmas Eve alone in his room, turning over old letters and aviation magazines with pictures of Hawk Erickson, wondering whether he might not go back to that lost world. Josiah Bagby, Jr., son of the eccentric doctor at whose school Carl had learned to fly, was experimenting with hydroplanes and with bomb-dropping devices in Palm Beach, and imploring Carl as the steadiest pilot in America to join him. The dully, noiseless room echoed the music of a steady motor carrying him out over a blue bay. Carl's own answer to the temper vision was, Rats! I can't very well leave the tour car now, and I don't know as I've got my flying nerve back yet. Besides, Ruth. Always he thought of Ruth, uneasy with the desire to be out dancing, laughing, playing with her, he was tormented by a question he had been threshing out for days. Might he permissibly have sent her a Christmas present? He went to bed at ten o'clock on Christmas Eve, when the streets were surging with voices and gay steps, when rollicking piano tunes from across the street penetrated even closed windows, and a German voice as rich as milk chocolate was caressing, O Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum, by Grunsanding Blatter. Then, slept for nine hours, woke with rapturous remembrance that he didn't have to go to the office, and sang The Banks of Saskatchewan in his bath. When he returned to the house after breakfast, he found a letter from Ruth. The day before Christmas and all through the mansion, the maids with turkeys are stirring. Please, pardon the scansion. Dear playmate, you said on our tramp that I would make a good playmate but I'm sure that I should be a very poor one if I did not wish you a glorious Merry Christmas and a New Year that will bring you all the dear things you want. I shall be glad if you do not get this letter on Christmas Day itself, if that means that you are off at some charming country house, having most chaotic, is that the way it is spelled? Probably not. Time, but if by any chance you are in town, won't you make your playmates shout to you from her backyard a part of your Christmas? She feels shy about sending this elusive greeting with all its characteristic sloppiness of writing, but she does want you to have a welcome to Christmas fun, and won't you please give the Turricar a pair of warm little slippers from Ruth Gaylord Winslow? P.S. Mrs. Terrell has sent me an angel miniature Japanese garden with a tiny pagoda and real dwarf trees, 
and a bridge that you expect an Alfred Noyes lantern on, and, oh, Carl, and it's a goldfish in a pool. Miss R. Winslow. All the dear things I want, Carl repeated, standing tranced in the hall, oblivious of the doctor landlord's snooping at his back. Ruth, blessed, do you know the thing I want most? Say, great, I'll hustle out and send her all the flowers in the world. Oh, no, I've got it. He was already out of the house, hastening toward the subway. I'll send her one of those lingerie tea-baskets with all kinds of baby pots of preservatives and tea-balls and stuff. Wonder what Dunlovey's sent her. Rats, I don't care. Jiminy, I'm happy. Meet a Palm Beach to fly? Not a chance. He had Christmas dinner in state with the California Exiles Club. He was craftily careless about the manner in which he touched a letter in his pocket for gloves, which tailors have been inspired to put on the left side of dress pearls. Twice Carl called at Ruth in the two weeks after Christmas. Once she declared that she was tired of modern life, that socialism and agnosticism shocked her, that the world needed the courtly stiffness of mid-Victorian days, as so ably depicted in the works of Mrs. Florence Barclay. Needed hair cloth as a scourge for white tango dancing backs. As for her, Ruth announced she was going to be mid-Victorian just as soon as she could find a hair locket, silk mitts, and an elderly female tortoiseshell cat with an instinctive sense of delicacy. She sat bolt upright on the front of the most impersonal French gilt chair in the drawing-room, and asserted that Phil Donlevy, with his safe ancestry of two generations of wholesalers and strong probabilities about the respectability of still another generation, was her ideal of a Christian gentleman. She wore a full white muslin gown with a blue sash, her hair primly parted in the middle, her right hand laid flat over her left in her lap. Her vocabulary was choice. For a second, when she referred to winter sports at Lake Placid, she forgot herself and tucked one smooth, silk-clad, un-Victorian leg under her, but instantly she recovered her poise of a vicarage, remarking, I have been subject to very careless influences lately. She called him neither Carl nor Mr. Erickson nor anything else, and he dared not venture on Ruth. He went home in bewilderment. As he crossed Broadway, he loitered insolently, as though challenging the flying squadron of taxicabs to run him down. "'What do I care if they hit me?' he inquired savagely of his sympathetic and applauding self. Every word she had said he examined, finding double and triple meanings, warning himself not to regard her mood seriously, but unable to make the warning take. On his next call there was a lively Ruth, who invited him up to the library, read extracts from Stephen Leelock's nonsense novels, turned companionably serious, and told him how divided were her sympathies between her father, the conscientiously worried employer, and a group of strikers in his factory. She made coffee in a fantastic percolator, and played Dupassi and Ragtime. At ten-thirty, the hour at which he had vehemently resolved to go, they were curled up in two big chairs, eating chocolate peppermints and talking of themselves apropos of astronomy and the tour car and Lincoln Birchley's daring and Mason Winslow and patriotism and Jeroleman 
Ruth's father drifted in from his club at a quarter to eleven. Carl now met him for the first time. He was a large-stomached, bald, sober, friendly man, with a gladstone collar, a huge watch-chain, kindly trousers, and painfully smart tan boots, a father of the kind who gives cigars and non-committal encouragement to daughter suitors. It takes a voice with personality and modulations to make a fifteen-minute telephone conversation tolerable, and youth to make it possible. Ruth had both. For fifteen minutes she discussed with Carl the question of whether she should go to Marion Brown's dinner dance at Delmonico's, as Phil wished, or go skiing in the Winchester Hills, as Carl wished. The coming Saturday. The first Saturday in February, 1913. Carl won. They arrived at a station in the Bedford Hills, bearing long, curved, proud Norwegian skis, which seemed to hypnotize the other passengers. To Carl's joy, for he associated that suit with the Palisades and their discovery of each other, Ruth was in her blue corduroy, with high lace boots and a gray sweater jacket of silky wool. Carl displayed a tweed Norfolk jacket, a great sweater, and mittens unabashed. He had a marvelous pack which he informed the excited Ruth contained Roland's sword and the magic rug of Baghdad. Together they were apple-cheeked, chattering children of outdoors. For the horizon weight of dark clouds, clear sunshine lay on clear snow as they left the train and trotted along the road, carrying their skis beyond the outskirts of the town. Country sleigh bells chinked down a hill, children shouted and made snow houses. Elders stamped their feet and chucked, Fine day! New York was far off and ridiculously unimportant. Carl and Ruth reached an open sloping field, where the snow that partially covered a large rock was melting at its lacy crystal edges, staining the black rock to a shiny wetness that was infinitely cheerful in its tiny reflection of the blue sky at the zenith. On a tree whose bleak bark the sun had warmed, Vagrant sparrows in hand-me-down feathers discussed rumors of the establishment of a breadcrumb line and the better day that was coming for all proletarian sparrows. A rounded drift of snow stood out against a red barn. The litter of corn silk and straw in a barnyard was transformed from discorded muck to a tesselin of warm silver and old gold. Not the delicate red and browns and grays alone, but Everywhere the light as well caressed the senses. A distant dog barked good-natured greeting to all the world. The thawing land stirred with promise that spring might in time return to lovers. Oh, today is beautiful as, as it's beautiful as frosting on a birthday cake, cried Ruth, as she slipped her feet into the straps of her skis, preparing for her first lesson. These skis seem so dreadfully wrong and unmanageable. Now I get them on like seven-foot table knives and my silly feet like orange seeds in the middle of the knives. The skis were unmanageable. One climbed up on the other, and Ruth tried to lift her own weight. When she was sliding downhill a hillock, they spread apart, eager to chase things lying in entirely different directions. Ruth came down between them her pretty nose plowing the wet snow-crust. Carl, speeding beside her, his obedient skis exactly parallel, lifted her and brushed the snow from her furs and her nose. She was laughing. Falling, getting up, 
learning at last the zest of coasting and of handling those gigantic skates on level stretches. She accompanied him from hill to hill, through fences, skirting thickets, till they reached a hollow at the heart of a farm, where a brooklet led into deeper woods. The afternoon was passing. The swarthy clouds marched grimly from the east, but the low sun red-lettered the day. The country-bred Carl showed her how thin sheets of ice formed on the bank of the stream and jutted out like shells of an elfin cupboard, delicate and curious-edged as Venetian glass, and how through an opening in the ice she could spy upon a secret world of clear water, not dead from winter but alive with piratical black bugs over sand of exquisitely pale gray, like Lilliputian submarines in a fairy sea. A rabbit hopped away among the trees beyond them, and Carl, following its trail, read to her the forest hieroglyphics, tracks of rabbit and chipmunk and crow, of field mouse and house cat. In the snow-paved city of night animals with its edifices of twiggy underbrush. The setting sun was overclouded now, the air sharp, the groves uneasily quiet, branches contracting in the returning cold, ticked like a solemn clock of the woodland and about them slunk the homeless mysteries that at twilight revisit even the tiniest forest to wail of the perished wilderness. "'I know there's Indians sneaking along in there,' she whispered, "'and wolves and outlaws, and maybe a Hudson Bay factor coming in a red Mackinac coat, and maybe a mountain policeman and a lost girl.' Saying which, remarked Ruth, the brave young man undid his pack and disclosed to the admiring eyes of the hungry lass, meaning me, especially the hungry, the wonders of his pack, which she had been covertly eyeing amid all the perils of the afternoon. Carl did not know it, but all his life he had been seeking a girl who would, without apologetic explanation, begin a story with herself and him for its characters. He instantly continued her tale. And from the pack the brave young hero whose new Norfolk jacket she admired such a lot. As I said, from the pack he pulled two clammy blue hard-boiled eggs and a thermos bottle filled with tea into which I've probably forgotten to put any sugar. And then she stabbed him and went swiftly home. Don't be frivolous about food. Just one hard-boiled egg and you perish. None of these gentle convenience store box picnics for me. Of course, I ought to pretend that I have a bird-like appetite, but as a matter of fact, I could devour an English mutton-chop, four kidneys, and two hot sausages, and then some plum pudding and a box of chocolates, assorted. If this were a story, said Carl, knocking the crusted snow from dead branches and dragging them toward the center of a small clearing, the young hero from Jeroleman would now remind the city gal that "'Tis only among God's free hills that you can get an appetite.' And then the author would say, "'Nothing had ever tasted so good as those trout, "'yanked from the brook and cooked to a turn on the sizzling coals.' She looked at the stalwart young man, so skillfully frying the flapjacks, and contrasted him with the effeminate fops she had met on Fifth Avenue. But meanwhile, "'Squaw, you better tear some good dry twigs off this brush for kindling.' Gathering twigs while Carl scrabbled among the roots for dry leaves, Ruth went on again with her story. "'Yes,' said the fair maid of wilds, 
obediently bending her poor patient back at the cruel behest of the stern man of granite. May I put something into the story which will politely indicate how much the unfortunate lady appreciates this heavenly snow placed in contrast at the beastly city, even though she is so abominably treated? Yes, but as I warned you, nothing about the effect of the out-of-doors on the appetite. All you've got to do is watch a city broker, eat fourteen pounds of steak, three pots of coffee, and four black cigars at a Broadway restaurant, to realize that the effeminate city man occasionally gets up quite some appetite, too. My dear, she wailed, aside from the vulgarity of the thing, you know that no one ever admits to real interest in food. I am so hungry that if there is any more mention of eating— I shall go off in a corner and howl. You know how those adorable German Christmas stories always begin. Es war a watchman, tefer schwein, log im Boden, deutsch, as wold, kamen armies, madden, das, und bitterach. The reason why she waited bitterach was because her soul was hurt at being kept out of the secret of the beautiful, beautiful food that was hidden in the hero's pack. Now let's have no more imaginary menus. Let's discuss Nijinsky and the musical asses till you are ready. All ready now, he proclaimed, kneeling by the pyramid of leaves, twigs, and sticks he had been erecting. He lit a match and kindled a leaf. Fire ran through the mass, and rosy light brightened the darkened snow. By the way, he said, as with cold fingers he pulled at the straps of his pack, I'm beginning to be afraid that we'll be a lot later getting home than we expected. Well, I suppose I'll go to sleep on the train and wake up at every station and wail and make you uncomfortable, and Mason will be grieved and disapproving when I get home late. But just now I don't care. I don't. It's la belle aventure. Carl, do you realize that never in my twenty-four, almost twenty-five now, never in all these years have I been out like this in the wilds, in the dark, not even with Phil? And yet I don't feel afraid, just terribly happy. You do trust me, don't you? You know I do. Yet when I realize that I really don't know you at all. He had brought out from the pack graniteware plates and cups, a stew pan and a coffee pot, a ruddied paper of meat and a can of peas, rolls, johnny cake, maple syrup, a screw top bottle of cream, pasteboard boxes of salt and pepper and sugar, lamb chops, coiled in the covered stew pan, loudly broiled in their own fat, and to them the peas, heated in their can, were added when the coffee began to foam. He dragged a large log to the side of the fire and Ruth there sitting, gorged shamelessly. Carl himself did not eat reticently. Light snow was falling now, driven by them on the rising wind. The fire, where hot coals had piled higher and higher, was a refuge in the midst of the darkness. Carl rolled up another log for protection from the weather and placed it at right angles to the first. "'You were saying at Mrs. Needham's that we ought to have an old farmhouse,' he remarked while he snuggled before the fire, her back against the log, her round knees up under her chin, her arms clasping her legs. Let's build one right here. Instantly she was living it, 
In the angle between the logs she laid out an outline of twigs, exclaiming, Here is my room, with low ceiling and exposed rafters, and a big open fireplace, not a single touch of pale pink or rosebuds. Then here's my room, with a workbench and a bed nine feet long that I can lose myself in. And here outside my room, said Ruth, I'm going to have a brick terrace, and all around it, heliotrope growing in pots on the brick wall. I'm sorry, blessed, but you can't have a terrace. Don't you realize that every brick would have to be carted two hundred miles through this wilderness? I don't care. If you appreciated me, you'd carry them on your back, if necessary. Well, I'll think it over. Oh, look here. I'm going to have a porch made out of fresh saplings outside of my room, and it'll overlook the hills, and it'll have outside cots with olive grave army blankets over them, and when you wake up in the morning, you'll see the hills in the first sunlight. Glorious! I'll give up my terrace, though I do think I was wheedled into it. Seriously, Ruth, wouldn't you like to have such a place back in the wilderness? Love it. I'd be perfectly happy there, at least for a while. I wouldn't care if I ever saw another airgate or fat rhine maiden singing in thirty sharps. Listen, how would this be for a sight? Let me stick some more wood here on your side of the fire. Once when I was up in high Sierras in California, I fought a wooded bluff. You looked a thousand feet straight down to a clear lake, green as mid-sauce, pretty nearly, not a wrinkle in it. There wasn't a sound anywhere except when the leaves rustled. Then on the other side you looked up onto a peak covered with snow and a big eagle sailing overhead, sailing and sailing hour after hour. And you could smell the pine needles and sit there and look way off. Would you like it? Oh, I can't tell you how much. Have to go there some day. When you're president of the Van Zale Company, you must give me a tour car to go in, and perhaps I shall let you go, too. Right. I'll be chauffeur and cook and everything, quietly exultant at her sweet, unworded promise of liking. He hastily said, to cover that thrill, even a poor old low-brow mechanic like me does get a kind of poetic fervor out of a view like that. But you aren't a low-brow mechanic. You make me so dreadfully weary when you're mock-humble. As a matter of fact, you're a famous man, and I am a poor little street waif. For instance, the way you talk about socialism when you get interested and let yourself go, really excited. I'd always thought that aviators and other sorts of heroes were such stored dubs. Gee, it'd be natural enough if I did like to talk. Imagine the training and being with the English superintendent at the mine, and I was telling you about in hearing Fraser lecture and knowing Tony Bean with his South American interest, and most of all, of course, knowing Forrest Haviland, if I had any pep in me. Of course, I'm terribly slangy, I suppose, but I couldn't help wading right in and wanting to talk to everybody about everything. Yes, yes, of course, I'm abominably slangy, too. I wonder if everyone isn't, except in books. We've left our house a little unfinished, Carl. I'm afraid we'll have to, blessed. We'll have to be going. It's past seven now, and we must be sure to catch the 809. 
and get back to town about nine. I can't tell you how sorry I am. We must leave our house in the wilds. You really have enjoyed it. He was cleaning the last of the dishes with snow and packing them away. You know, he said cautiously, I always used to feel that a girl, you say you aren't in society, but I mean a girl like you. I used to think it was impossible to play with such a girl unless a man was rich, which I excessively am not, with my little money tied up in the Turricar. Yet here we have an all-day party, and it costs less than three really good seats at the theater. I know. Phil is always saying that he is too poor to have a good time, and yet his grandmother left him fifteen thousand dollars capital in his own right, besides his allowance from his father and his salary from the law firm, and he infuriates me sometimes, aside from the tactfulness of the thing, by quite plainly suggesting that I'm so empty-headed that I won't enjoy going out with him unless he spends a lot of money and makes waiters and ushers obsequious. There are lots of my friends who think that way, both girls and the men. They never seem to realize that if they were just human beings, as you and I have been today, and not hide-bound members of the dance and tea league, they could beat that beastly artificial old city. Phil once told me that no man, mind you, no one at all, could possibly marry on less than $15,000 a year. Simply proved it beyond a question. That lets me out. Phil said that no one could possibly live on the west side. Of course, the fact that he and I are both living on the west side doesn't count, and the cheapest good apartments near Fifth Avenue cost $4,000 a year and then one can't possibly get along with less than two cars and four maids and a chauffeur. Can't be done. He's right, Palsy. Only three maids might as well be dead. The pack was ready now. He was swinging it onto his back and preparing to stamp out the fire. But he dropped his burden and faced her in the low firelight. Ruth, you won't make up your mind to marry Phil. You're sure you will? You'll play with me a while, won't you? Can't we explore a few more? She laughed nervously, trying to look at him. As I said, Phil won't condescend to consider poor me till he has fifteen thousand dollars a year, and that won't be for some time, I think, considering he is too well-bred to work hard. But seriously, you will? Well, I don't know how to put it. You will let me be your playmate even as much as Phil is, while we're still. Carl, I have never played as much with anyone as with you. You make most of the men I know seem very unenterprising. It frightens me. Perhaps I oughtn't to let you jump the fence so easily. You won't let Phil lock you up for a while? No. Mustn't we be going? Thank you for letting the outlaw come to your party. The fire's out. Come. With the quenching of the fire, they were left with smothering darkness. Where do we go? She worried. I feel completely lost. I can't make out a thing. I feel so lost and so blind after looking at the fire. Her voice betrayed that he was suddenly a stranger to her. With hasty assurance, he said, Sit tight. See? We head that tall oak up the slope, then through the clearing, keeping to the right, 
You'll be able to see the oak as soon as you get the firelight out of your eyes. Remember, I used to hunt every fall as a kid and come back through the dark. Don't worry. I can just make out that tree now. Right. Now for it. We carry my skis. No, you just watch your feet. His voice was pleasant, quiet, not too intimate. Don't try to guide yourself by your eyes. Let your feet find the safe ground. Your eyes will fool you in the dark. It was a hard pull, the way back, encumbered with pack and two pair of skis, which they dared not use in the darkness. He could not give her a helping hand. The snow was still falling, not very thick nor savagely wind-borne, yet stinging their eyes as they crossed open moors, and the wind leaped upon them. Once Ruth slipped on a rock or a chunk of ice, and came down with an infuriating jolt. Before he could drop the skis, she struggled up and said dryly, "'Yes, it did hurt, and I know you're sorry, and there's nothing you can do.' Carl grinned and kept silence, though with one hand, as soon as he could get it free from the elusive skis, he lightly patted her shoulder. She was almost staggering, so cold was she and so tired, and so heavy was the snow caked on her boots. When they came to a sharp rise, down which shone an radiance of an incandescent light, "'Road's right up there, blessed,' he cried cheerily. "'Oh, I can't. Yes, I will.' He dropped the skis, put one arm about his shoulder and one about her knees, and almost before she had finished crying, "'Oh, no, please, don't carry me,' he was halfway up the slope. He set her down safe by the road. They caught the 809 train with two minutes to spare. Its warmth and the dingy softness of the place seats seemed palatial. Ruth rubbed her cold hands with a smile, depreciating, intimate, and her shoulder drooped toward him. Her whole being seemed turned toward him. He cuddled her right hand within his, murmuring, See, my hand's a house where yours can keep warm. Her fingers curled tight and rested there contentedly. Like a drowsy kitten, she looked down at their two hands. "'A little brown house,' she said. End of chapter 23